Hey guys, it's Scott. I just want to thank you for tuning into the Blue Ridge Church podcast. You know, I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope it's inspiring to you. And I pray most of all, it's going to help you on your faith journey. So enjoy today. I want to welcome you to Blue Ridge Church. Thanks for joining us today. I don't know about you, but I don't want summer to be going as fast as it's going. It is already the end of July. So if you haven't taken a vacation or a staycation or a couple days off and and been able to enjoy the weather, you need to do that because it is flying by. Before you know it, it's going to be fall and it's going to be cool again. But uh, the good news is you can take us with you on vacation. Our online services, those of you joining us today know this, but 9 and 1030 every Sunday and then throughout the week starting Sunday evening, you can watch that service whenever it's convenient for you. But it's great to have you here If this is your first time here, we're in a series right now called Everyday People. And what we've been doing in this series is really looking at uh, everyday, average, ordinary people that God chooses to use to do extraordinary things and to do uh, amazing things. God uses messed up people. He's been uh, using messed up people for thousands of years. He's still doing it today. But the problem is we don't believe that. We think that God only uses, you know, the religious elite or the spiritual superstars. So in this series, we're trying to dispel that myth. And I think the reason we buy into that myth is because a lot of times when we read the Bible, we almost read it like a fairy tale, right? We elevate those characters in the Bible to hero status. And we think, well, they didn't have any sin in their life. They didn't have any problems. They didn't have a past. They, they did everything right. But that's not the case. It was just God doing amazing things in them. And so we have to focus on God instead of the individual so that God gets all the credit. But if you read the scripture over and over again, he's using men and women who had all kinds of issues, men and women who resisted his grace, men and women who had sin in their life. They made bad choices in their life, but God was still able to use them. And that's what he's going to do through us. Even the great apostle Paul, who Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. He started a lot of new churches Even the Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to a a really young pastor by the name of Timothy. And he said, Timothy, this is why God can use me despite my faults and my failures. And and this is what he said, 1 Timothy 1, 16 through 17. Now, all of our notes, they're available on the Church Center app if you've downloaded that on your phone. Or you can simply scan that QR code that's in your seat back. Open your camera app and just hold up your smartphone to it and it'll scan it and it'll bring you up to our notes for today, if you want to follow along. But here's what he wrote But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. That's the story of all of us. And what Paul's saying is, hey, we are examples of God's patience. We're examples of God's mercy and God's grace and God's love. In other words, I'm so bad that God shows love to me. He's showing that he can love anybody in the world. And I don't know about you, but when I look at God's grace and God's mercy in my life, I'm blown away. We are all examples 
of his patience and grace. So you hear that, and you hear this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, you think everybody'd be open to Christ in a relationship with Christ, despite their faults, despite their sin, despite their past, despite their, their shortcomings. But the truth is, we don't like to talk about our faults, do we? That's no fun. We, nobody wants to talk about the multiple affairs or uh, the slander or the uncontrolled anger. Nobody wants to talk about uh, the pornography addiction or the marriage problems or the words that we can't control out of our mouths. None of us want to talk about our insecurities or greed, or anything like that. And I thought about that this week. You know why we don't like to talk about that stuff? Because we want people to like us. We don't want people to know that stuff. We want people to approve of us. And the truth is, most of us, if not all of us, at some point in our life, we've been addicted to the approval of others. We're addicted to what other people think about us and say about us. So if you're following along with our notes, our first learning today is learning number one. We allow the approval of others to determine our value. Often in life, we look to others to determine what we're worth. That's just human nature. It's not what God desires, but we look to others to tell us our value and our worth uh, on earth. Vernon Howard a philosopher, uh, sometimes a theologian, a pastor, he wrote, a truly strong person does not need the approval of others any more than a lion needs the approval of sheep. We know that in our head. I don't need the approval of others. It doesn't matter what other people think about me or say about me, but the truth is we thrive on that because we determine our worth based on it. Tana Mojo, she's an internet celebrity. A lot of young people probably know who she is, but she said this, No matter what you do, people are always going to have something negative to say about it. You could spend your life constantly trying to seek people's approval and validation, but there's always going to be someone that has something negative to say about what you're doing. So even though, despite we know that in our head that we don't need the approval and the acceptance and the affirmation of other people, a lot of times we let that determine our worth and our value. And listen, this isn't anything new. This has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And so that's what you're going to see in the story that we're going to look at today. And it is probably one of the strangest stories in the Old Testament. And it's about a dysfunctional, highly dysfunctional family where everybody was looking to everybody else for their approval and their acceptance in life. It's, it's found in the book of Genesis, about the midway through Genesis, the oldest book, or, or the first book, not the oldest book, but the first book in the Bible. And after we look at this family today, you're going to walk out of here and you're going to feel so much better about your very own family. I'm telling you, it is a crazy story, but it centers around a guy by the name of Jacob. Now, if you grew up in church or you've ever looked at the Old Testament, maybe you've heard of that God's referred to as the, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the Jacob that we're talking about. Jacob was the son of Isaac, and he was the grandson of Abraham. And the way the book of Genesis describes Jacob, it, it kind of a, it describes him as an underachiever. When it first picks up the story of Jacob, I mean, he's in his 70s. Now, their lifespan was longer. I get that. But he's in his 70s, and he's still living with his mom and dad. 
He's got no job. He's got no kids. He's got no wife. And he's an insider. The Bible describes him as an insider. He liked to stay inside. He, he was kind of a homebody. Uh, he preferred, you know, hanging out with his mom. He liked to cook. And he's probably that kid that watched, you know, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune at night with his parents. But he's the total opposite of his brother. He has a twin brother. Jacob has a twin brother by the name of Esau. Now, they were twins, but Esau came out first. So Esau was considered the firstborn son because he came out before Jacob. And that meant a lot in that culture, which we're going to look at in a minute. That meant he got a double portion of the inheritance. He got to be in charge of the family when his father was too old to do that or his father had passed away. But Esau loved to hunt. He loved the outdoors. He loved, you know, the animals. Jacob just wasn't wired that way. So as a result, Isaac, the, the father of the two boys, he liked Esau better. He favored Esau. So Jacob always felt that rejection from his father. Well, their mother was Rebekah, Isaac's wife, and she preferred Jacob over Esau. Well, this jealousy that Jacob has against his father and his brother fuels him to do something kind of crazy. And what he does is he deceives his brother Esau out of that birth, birthright, out of being the firstborn. And he trades him literally a bowl of stew for his brother's birthright. I'm telling you, you will feel great about your family when you leave today. But listen to this, Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 through 34. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful, skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. I mean, just that's messed up. The parents are choosing favorites. Well, one day Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that stew. This is how Esau got his name Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all of his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his right as the firstborn. So he deceives his brother out of his birthright. Now, what you have to understand is the father was the one that kind of bestowed that blessing on the eldest son. So now he's deceived Esau. He's also got to deceive his father Isaac in order to get that blessing. And he, again, he's so driven by rejection from his father that it causes him to deceive his own father to get a double portion of the inheritance and in the family uh, spiritual and material blessings. So how that worked, Isaac was getting on up in age. He's totally blind, the, the boy's dad. And, and it's time for him to bestow the blessing, which he thinks is going to be on Esau. So what Isaac does is he tells Esau, hey, go hunting. 
get, get some game, cook it, prepare me a meal. And after I eat that meal, I'll bestow the blessing on you. Well, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, hears her give these instructions to Esau. So what she does, she's determined too to be in on this to deceive Isaac so that that blessing goes to Jacob instead of Esau. So she whips up a meal and she tells Jacob, hey, go put on your brother's clothes so that you'll smell like your brother to your dad. And and then she put, I think it was goat hair on his arms and his neck because Esau is a really hairy guy and and, and in case Isaac touched him, he'd feel like Esau. Well, they deceive him. They they give him this meal that Rebecca really cooked and after the meal, he bestows the family blessing on Jacob instead of Esau. He was convinced it was Esau when he did it. But in fact, it was Jacob. And then he finds out he's been deceived by his son into getting the family blessing. And we, we read this story and we're thinking, yeah, why didn't he just reverse it? Why didn't he just take it back from Jacob and give it to Esau? Well, listen, in that culture, there was no such thing as take backs. There was no such thing as, oh, I didn't really mean that. Their word was their word, and it was binding. Plus, this was God's design and desire. After Isaac is deceived by his son, the Bible says he starts to tremble. And a lot of theologians, a lot smarter than me, have studied this and say that was just God speaking to Isaac and saying this, in fact, blessing is going to Jacob and not to Esau. And if you back up and look in the scripture, God actually told their mother, Rebecca, that the oldest son would serve the younger, meaning that Jacob would eventually get that family blessing. Well, imagine Esau comes back from hunting and he, dis- he sees and hears that his brother Jacob has once again deceived him, not just out of the birthright, but the family blessings as well. So he is furious. Even though he had no regard for his birthright, it says he traded it for a bowl of stew. He's furious. And I think a great question to ask ourselves, and I've heard this asked before, is what's our bowl of stew? Because we all have one, right? What is it that we would trade and sacrifice everything for on this earth? Or do something as drastic as Esau did with his birthright. But he's furious. He wants to kill his brother. So Jacob decides to run away. So he packs up his, you know, Lord of the Rings DVD collection and, you know, his cookware set, whatever he's got. And he runs off to live with his uncle Laban, Rebecca's brother. And he gets to where Laban lives. And and I want to pick up the story in Genesis 29. Verses one through three. Then Jacob hurried on, finally arriving in the land of the east. He saw a well in the distance. Three flocks of sheep and goats lay in an open field beside it, waiting to be watered. But a heavy stone covered the mouth of the well. It was the custom there to wait for all the flocks to arrive before removing the stone and watering the animals. Afterward, the stone would be placed back over the mouth of the well. Now, you've probably read some of these verses and and we just read right through that. Doesn't seem like any big deal. You know, Jacob arrives, he's hanging out with the locals, right? At this well. And he's learning about this custom that they would keep the well covered until everybody got their animals up there to water the animals at the same time. That was probably uh, for multiple reasons. 
probably that well cover was heavy. And it would have taken multiple people to remove that, but it also kept the water cool and kept it clean, kept dirt out of it, dust out of it, you know, animals, whatever, until everybody was there. And then they'd water the animals and, and cover the well back up and everybody would head home. So he's learning about all this, just hanging out with the locals, waiting for everybody to get there. Well, they know he's going to see Laban. And one of them points out, hey, that's Laban's daughter, Rachel, that's coming up to the well right now with those sheep. And it's kind of like last week when King Xerxes saw Esther, when Jacob sees Rachel, he's mesmerized by her. Now remember, this guy's kind of described as an underachiever up to this point. He, he's, he's, he's on the run, right? He's broke. He's homeless. He's hoping to stay with his uncle Laban. This beautiful girl comes up and look what happens. Genesis 29, 10. Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. And you're like, okay. But think about it. This well cover probably would have taken multiple people to remove. But all of a sudden, this guy who's never done any work, doesn't have any calluses on his hands, he's been inside all his life, he turns into the superhero and removes this stone all by himself. He's showing off in front of this girl, Rachel. You ever done that? You show off in front of somebody. Maybe your boyfriend comes to your volleyball game or your basketball game, and, and you know he's sitting there in the audience, so you play extra hard or, or you try things maybe that you've never tried before on the court to try to really impress him. Or your girlfriend's watching you ski or skateboard, and you, you do things you wouldn't normally do to show off a little bit. That's what he's doing. He's showing off for this beautiful girl. And so then Jacob kisses her, and the Bible says he starts to cry. And so Rachel runs home, and she gets her uncle Laban, and, or, or her dad, it's Jacob's uncle, brings him back to the well. He welcomes Jacob into the family, and Jacob starts to work for Laban. And he's working for him, and he's worked for him about a month, you know, three or four weeks, and then Laban wants him to stay and basically offers him a full-time job. And when it comes time to talk about, you know, how much you're going to pay me, you know, this, that, and the other, here's what we read next. Genesis 29, 16 through 17. Now Laban had two daughters. The oldest daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. She's the one that was at the well. There was no spark in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. And I don't know if it's because I'm just so warped, but every time I read this, I just laugh. And every time we study this, I crack up because of how, how eloquently the scripture tells us that Leah is not that pretty. That's what the Bible's saying. Rachel's pretty, Leah, eh, not so much. All right. And that's going to be important here in a minute for you to understand that. But that's what the Bible's saying. Leah is not very attractive. Now, I know everybody's beautiful and attractive in God's eyes, and I get that. But from a human perspective, for some reason, the scripture points out the fact that Leah is missing a little bit in the looks department. So when it comes time to discuss his job and his pay and working for Laban, here's what Jacob suggests to Laban. Genesis 29, 18, since Jacob was in love with Rachel... He told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Now, that was the custom back then. 
to, to pay something for your wife. And it showed that the, the, the man was hardworking, he was industrious, he was committed, he was responsible, but he has no money. Remember, he's on the run. So instead, he proposes, I will work for you for seven years if you will give me Rachel as my wife. And it's almost at this point that Jacob's uh, desire for acceptance and approval has shifted from his father Isaac to now this girl, Rachel. He's looking for approval and acceptance in her. Well, they agree to this. And so Jacob works for her for seven years, or works for Laban for Rachel for seven years. And then the Bible describes that time period in Genesis 29, 20. But his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Aww. Isn't that sweet? Now listen, guys, would your wife say that about you? You've been married 10 years, would she say, oh, it just seems like a couple of days? I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. That's how in love he is with her. And then Genesis 29, 21, the seven years is up. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Wow. Nothing like getting right to the point, Jacob, right? He's like, listen, for seven years, I have had a goal for Rachel to be my wife. And I've worked for you for seven years and now I want to fulfill my goal. And I want to fulfill it over and over again. So Genesis 29, 22. So Laban invites everyone in the neighborhood and prepares a wedding feast. Now, here's what's getting ready to happen. Jacob is getting ready to be deceived by Laban. It was customary for the bride to be fully veiled. And I don't know if they had the ceremony in the evening, but Laban decides instead of giving Jacob Rachel as his wife, he's going to give her Leah as his wife. Remember, she probably doesn't have any prospects right now. That's the way the Bible described it. And he's got to take care of his oldest daughter. And he thought, mm, this will be a good way for me to get Leah married to Jacob. So he's getting ready to deceive him. So apparently the, the wedding happens. You know, they exchange rings and vows and the photographer takes all of the pictures and you know, the paperwork's filled out or whatever. And, and so Jacob takes his new wife, who he thinks is Rachel, Leah, I guess into his tent Puts on some Bruno Mars, you know, and he gets into a romantic wrestling match, if you will. And apparently he had way too much fun at the reception because he didn't realize that it wasn't Rachel until the next morning. And that's when things got really, really awkward. Genesis 29, 25. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? This is us. The great deceiver, Jacob, who's deceived his very own father, deceived his brother twice, is now upset because he himself is on the receiving end of being deceived. Isn't that how we operate? The person that gossips and talks about everybody in the workplace gets upset when somebody talks about them. 
The person who lies consistently throughout their entire life and then somebody lies to them about something and they go sideways, completely sideways. Jacob, the great deceiver, who's also going to deceive Laban later on in Genesis if you want to read about it, he gets upset because he's now on the receiving end of deception. Well, they obviously discuss this and they come to another agreement and Laban agrees about a week later to give him Rachel as his wife, but in exchange for another seven years of work. So he works 14 years essentially for Rachel. And when Rachel comes into the mix, things in that family, I told you you were going to feel better about your, your family today. So she comes into the mix and it's not a very pleasant situation because Jacob only wants to be with Rachel now. Leah's looking for acceptance in Jacob. But Jacob doesn't want to be with her. He wants to be with Rachel all the time. And so God sees what's going on and he does something. Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children. Now, she starts having kids rather quickly. She has uh, Reuben, Simeon, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And she probably thinks after each one of these kids, now, now Jacob's going to want to be with me. Now Jacob's going to love me. Now Jacob's going to listen to me. Now Jacob's going to pay attention to me because I've been able to have kids for him. And that was a big deal in that culture, but it never happens. Jacob still wants to be with Rachel. Yet Leah is looking to Jacob for approval and acceptance and affirmation in life, just like we do. We look to people instead of to God. And now she's becoming extremely jealous of her sister Rachel because Jacob wants to be with her all the time. And she's totally allowing that jealousy that she has to miss the blessings that God's given her in her life through these children. So learning number two, we have to be careful that jealousy doesn't overshadow our blessings from God. Yet it happens all the time. We get sideways about something or so jealous about something, we miss what God's trying to do or is doing in our lives. So God allows her to have all of these children, yet Rachel, on the other side of the equation, she get, she's getting one pink line every time on that pregnancy test. She can't get pregnant. She can't have kids. And so what does she do? She gets incredibly jealous of her sister Leah because she's able to have kids. And their jealousy back and forth is robbing them of seeing what God's trying to do in their lives and, and of the many blessings that God is giving them. Same thing happens to us. So Rachel gets to the point, she just wants to die. Her life is miserable. I can't have any kids. Leah gets to have all the kids. So she's feeling rejection from God because she can't have any kids. And then God did something else. Genesis 30, verse 22 through 24. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my disgrace, she said. And she named him Joseph. For she said, may the Lord add yet another son to my family. Is this not a crazy story filled with insecurity, jealousy, heartache, 
rejection, Leah, Rachel, even Jacob, everyday, ordinary people, doing something extraordinary for God. Do you realize that Leah's children and Rachel's children, and I think a couple of the servants' children, became the 12 tribes of Israel? The Jewish nation was birthed through this family. God chose all that dysfunction in that family to create the Jewish nation. I I think that's pretty significant. Here's what we need to understand. Even though we don't know it, and we talked about this last week, God is up to something in our lives. He's constantly working in our lives whether we see it or not. Leah didn't see it. As God was blessing her with those kids, Rachel didn't see it. Jacob certainly didn't see it. But it was through this messed up family, an everyday family, that much of the Jewish history starts to unfold. That's amazing to me. I mean, why would God do that? Why wouldn't God wait till this family straightened up a little bit? Why didn't God wait until, you know, they got their act together a little better. See, God doesn't always just want to edit our behaviors. He wants to change our heart, right? He wants our hearts to be fully his and completely his. He wants our hearts to desire him and trust him and look to only him. So I think a great reflection question as we get ready to leave today is we need to look at our hearts. The Bible warns us that our hearts are deceitful all of the time. So we should ask a question, hey, what's keeping my heart from being fully God's? What is it about my heart that God would want to change? Or what's wrong with my heart today? And we can ask pointed questions about our heart. We we saw that jealousy between those two sisters. What is it in my heart that keeps me getting so jealous that I can't celebrate with a friend that has success or somebody in my family that has success or somebody in my workplace that has success. What's so wrong with my heart that I can't do that? What's so wrong in my heart that that I get nervous and anxious and upset when I think about what people say about me and what people feel about me? You know, what's so wrong with my heart that, that fuels me to do things that I know aren't good for me, that I know are sinful? Ask those questions about your heart. Be honest about the answers as well. And I think what you'll find, what's often wrong with our heart is we continue to look for the approval and the acceptance and the affirmation of ourselves from other people instead of from God. So God's going to allow us in life to go through things that are tough Uh, He's going to allow us to go through pain and hurt and disappointment and rejection. And through that, though we have to go through those things, he wants to do something in our hearts. And here's what he wants to do. Learning number three, God wants to move us from finding approval in others to finding approval in him. He wants us to look to him and him only for our approval and our acceptance and our affirmation. I mean, we may feel totally rejected by our family or our workplace or our friends from the whole world, but God says, hey, I love you. 
and I approve you. No matter what. God says, hey, while, while you're still steeped in sin and you're running down your own path and you're trying to be independent of me, while you're fighting me and resisting me and resisting my grace, I want you to know I accept you. I accept you. Romans 15, 7, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given the glory. Folks, we're everyday, ordinary people that no matter what, God accepts and God loves and God approves. Paul said we are great examples of God's love. If he can love us, he can love anybody. And though we may struggle when we walk out of here, and we will, with that approval of other people and the acceptance of other people, God says, I can still use you. He was still able to use Leah and Rachel and Jacob. Even though they were looking for approval and acceptance from each other and other people. Because God accepts us. We need to remember that. And though we struggle, he'll still use us. Now, each week we talked about how we were going to introduce you to just uh, people or a person here at the church that's an everyday people doing amazing things for God. So I want you to watch a, a quick video with me and then we'll close. Sorry, I looked at you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tom. And I'm Melinda. We moved to Blacksburg about six years ago and are so thankful that a friend recommended Blue Ridge Church. She knew Scott from another church that he had worked at before and thought that his new church that he created in the New River Valley would be a good fit for us. And it has been from the very beginning. After a couple of weeks of attending, I wanted to get involved because uh, I just felt the you know, the great vibe from the church. And so I wrestled down Craig and talked to him. He used to run First Impressions. And he said, fill out a blue connection card. So I did. Uh, and before I knew it, I was in the parking lot volunteering. I was greeting at the doors. I was working programs. Uh, and I so enjoyed volunteering that when I was done with my First Impressions duty, I'd meet Melinda in the children's ministry. I started volunteering in the kids ministry. And it took a while for me to find a perfect fit classroom, but Kim did a fabulous job helping me move around until I found my happy place working with the babies. That was a lot of fun. And we had such a good time volunteering here and enjoying the positive atmosphere that we wanted to get more involved and decided to sign up for some growth groups to grow deeper in our faith and to help us meet more people. Uh, we're prime examples of God using everyday people uh, to do things throughout the church, throughout God's church. Um, when we were asked to run the First Impressions team, we were humbled, mortified, uh, and we still don't feel like we're qualified to do it, but we do it every Sunday, uh, scheduling many volunteers uh, every, every Sunday to make this church run. Uh, and we thoroughly enjoy it. Um, coming to this church has been a blessing for us. Uh, the people here are so fantastic. They've helped us grow in our faith and we wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Classic example of everyday people just doing amazing things for God. They, when we asked them to lead our first impressions here, they're like, no way. We're not qualified. We can't do that. They had doubts and insecurities and issues just like all of us. But they said, you know what? We're going to try it. We're going to see what God's up to. And God's done amazing things through them and through all of you that, that serve with them.
Don't ever discount that God's going to use you. He uses me, he's going to use you. He's using you. Everyday people to do extraordinary things. Uh, Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the story of of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And Lord, uh, to see this family that sometimes we've just thought, man, they're, they're just a perfect family. They don't have anything going on. To see all that chaos and dysfunction this morning and know that you are still working in the midst of that. God, help us to look to you for our approval and acceptance and not others. Lord, forgive us when we have the tendency to get our value from what other people say instead of from what you say. Maybe you're here today or you're watching online as we're praying and and you've never started that relationship with Christ because you thought you had to be good enough or do something special or stop doing something or start doing something else. I hope you know nothing could be further from the truth. He accepts you right where you're at. He approves you right where you're at. Just invite him into your life. Just pray. Just, just pray from the quietness of your heart. Jesus, you know what? I know I messed up. I know I'm a sinner, but I want you in my life. I know there's no prerequisite other than me saying yes to you, and I'm inviting you in as best I know how. Those of you that are already following Christ and have crossed that line of faith, why don't you just pray and ask God to remind you every time you look for approval in others to remind you of what he says about you and how he approves you and he loves you and he accepts you and he has mercy on you. God, that's because you never give up on us. You love us. You care about us. You accept us and approve us. It's so hard for us to imagine. But God, help us to rest in that this week and moving forward. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Real quick as we finish up, obviously today is Christmas in July in our kids' area. They're celebrating the birth of Christ. There's donuts out there. If you didn't get one, make sure you get one. There's a place you can get a a picture with a different background with your family. You can do that as well. If you're in the 6th through the 12th grade, the youth are having a pool party this Tuesday, not Wednesday, but Tuesday from 8 to 9.30 at Ridgewood. All you have to do is you can sign up on that Church Center app that's on your phone, or you can scan that QR code, or you can go to the youth social media page under events, and you can sign up for that as well. But that's going to be a great time for our youth. And then mark your calendars for August the 8th, Sunday from 1130 to 3, out in the field. We're having Adventure Fest. We combined our adventure camp into one day, uh, just because all the planning and the craziness of the world we live in, uh, especially this year. But uh, there's going to be, you know, bounce houses and games and prizes and food and, and there's no cost and you can invite anybody you want, but make sure you, you mark your calendars if you're in town for August the 8th. I hope you have a terrific Sunday. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.